Our first scripture passage is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, read from the English Standard Version. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power in the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and he raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace, for it is by grace, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is one of the most clear summaries of the Christian message you can possibly find. We talk about it as the gospel, meaning the good news brought together in one sentence, This is the good news of Christianity. Yet in my experience, I would say this is largely misunderstood by those who reject Christianity, and it's very often not really applied by those who say they are believers in Christianity. Recent Pew Research has been identifying a new category of religion. It's called the nuns, not as in monks of the female side, it's no affiliation, none, N-O-N-E. It's the fastest rising group of people in the United States when it comes to their religious identification. To be a nun is to be atheist, agnostic, or unaffiliated. In the D.C. area, one in four people is identified as a nun, N-O-N-E. These people for many reasons, have rejected Christianity. Now, some, because they're atheists, have rejected the idea of God, but many of the others in the majority are atheists or or agnostic or unaffiliated because they're just unsure. Or they don't like the hypocrisy they've seen in Christians. Or the politics or moral stances of Christians, they disagree with those. Or they've had bad experiences with the church. We spent many weeks this summer talking about some of their reactions to Christianity. But my experience has been, personally, and in things that I've read, very few nuns, N-O-N-E, very few who reject Christianity know what it is they're rejecting. If you identify in that way, unaffiliated, unsure, doubter, Is this what you're rejecting? Do you really know the Christianity you're rejecting before you reject it? 
On the other side, I think few Christians apply this. We say that we believe this, but we very rarely live it out. According to a Barna research, another research team, over half of people who identify as Christians, over half of people who identify as Christians actually display attitudes and actions that are more pharisaical than Jesus-like. So the question is, if you are a Christian, what is it that you believe makes you a Christian? Is it Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Do you apply this in your daily life? Let's look at this passage, Ephesians 2 as a whole, see what it says to those of us who are unsure whether we accept Christianity, and then for those who say they do, let's see how we can apply it. That's really the goal today. So let's get into the good part. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul starts off giving us a description of the Christian gospel, and he sounds very, very Morrissey-like. It's very, it's very dark and somber. You were dead. That's a great start. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The first thing I want to point out is that word following. Following means linked arm in arm with, walking along the sidewalk linked arm in arm, or in the ancient world, you followed a rabbi or teacher or philosopher, meaning you were under them as your teacher, under them as your master and lord. What are you following? Paul says, all of us follow something. And he says, by nature, we follow, the, I'm just going to simplify all these things, the world, Satan, ourself. The world meaning the cultural age in which we live. And look, there's never been a Christian age. Every age has had a set of vision, of values, and of goals that we pursue naturally because it's the air we breathe. America is individualists, capitalists, we seek freedom. Some of that is good. Some of that becomes what we serve. The Bible talks about Satan. There is a spiritual realm to humanity. Satan is the tempter and liar, drawing us to do what we actually want to do, which is the very next thing, our flesh, our passions, our desires, which I think is actually the primary thing that leads us. Paul talks about this elsewhere in Romans and in Galatians. We are all followers of self, what I want. And you see what Paul's doing here? He's doing the same thing Jesus does time and again. He's redefining sin. Again, we think of sin as bad things, immorality, breaking laws. Paul doesn't use that language here. Instead, his language for sin is living for or under another master. And he includes everyone in this. Look at how he uses you and we. Don't gloss over this. At the beginning he says, you, this is verse one, you were dead in your trespasses, and then we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul has done this earlier in Ephesians 1. When he uses the you, we language, the Ephesians were Gentiles, meaning they were pagans. Everyone knew who was Jewish, they were immoral. Jews were faithful. They had the law. They were the chosen people. When Paul uses you, he's talking about you Gentiles, 
You pagan and moral Gentiles were dead in your sin, but the we language is meant to be bringing himself and all Jews into it as well. We who have the law, we who are the chosen people, we who have circumcision, you religionless people, we religious people, you immoral people, we moral people, all of us are dead in our sin. Jesus does the same thing in the parable of the prodigal son, doesn't he? If you know that story, Jesus tells this parable, a certain man had two sons, one the younger brother, and that's the one we most think of, who took his father's property and squandered it in reckless living. But the story is also about the older brother, the older brother who never leaves home, who follows all the rules. The younger brother is seeking heaven in worldly pleasures. The older brother is seeking heaven by following all the rules so he can get the father's stuff when the father dies. Both, both are their own master and Lord. Neither wants the love of the father. Both try to live apart from him. And Paul is saying, the very religious and the religionless, the very moral and the immoral, conservatives and liberals, all of us are dead in our sin. Dead. We're all dead. And when Paul says dead, he means spiritually and eternally dead. And this goes back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, God says, do not eat of the fruit. On the day you eat, you will surely die. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and what? They're still alive physically. But what happens to them relationally, morally, spiritually? Their relationship with each other is broken as they try and hide and they accuse. Their relationship with creation is broken. Their relationship with themselves is broken. They can't even see themselves rightly because they have broken relationship with God. They're dying and dead spiritually. And this is carried out when God expels them from the garden, from the presence of the Lord. You see, death in the Bible even physical death is a metaphor for something far worse. It is to be apart from God spiritually. And ultimately, even when we talk about hell, it's to be apart from God eternally. We all, if we're honest, we all want to be better people, right? We all have things about ourselves we like to fix, ways we react to our kids or coworkers or you know, more generous with our money. We all want to be better people. But what this is telling us is we can't fix ourselves. You can't refocus, exercise enough, just get enough counseling, not try harder, be more disciplined. Because when it comes down to it, you can't make yourself alive if you're dead. You're dead. Paul says, we are dead. Okay, this is beginning to be a downer. Why do we keep focusing on this sin and dead stuff? If I said the statement, all of us are sinners, right? If I said that, all of us are sinners, that's actually something that people inside of the church and outside the church would agree with. In fact, you hear it in our culture all the time. 
it's usually used as a nice way to say let's be non-judgmental. We're all sinners. Just let everyone do what they want. We're all sinners. But that's not what Paul's saying. Let's push it a little bit further. It's not what the gospel says. Your unaffiliated nuns, so to speak, the average nun thinks that they are good enough. We all do. Think we're good enough because it's comparative. I'm not the murderer in jail, right? I'm good enough. What you don't realize is that Christianity is saying, no, you're not good enough. Even the best and most religious person is dead and apart from God because they're trying to be their own Lord by being good enough. Christians say, yes, we're all sinners. We think this is true, but still many of us as Christians think we have to be better. We have to be good in order to stay Christian. But again, sin the way Paul is defining it is not just immorality. It's not just breaking the rules. It's living apart from God by being your own master and Lord. Being your own savior. And while this is hard, what this is calling us to do is stop comparing. Stop living in relation to other people's sins or goodness. And stop pointing to people who you think are good enough and say, well, see, they should get in. Paul says, all of us are dead in our sin. All of us are sinful. All of us are mastered by something. All of us are dead. All of us are, as he puts it, children of wrath and apart from God forever. Okay, enough of the negative. But you need to hear that. If you think you're rejecting Christianity but don't hear that, you may not be rejecting Christianity. And if you think you're a Christian but don't actually believe that, you may not actually be a Christian. We are dead. But God, right? This passage cuts, this verse 4 cuts in, but God, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, the great but God of the gospel comes in. This is your state, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. That made alive together is the main verb of the entire sentence. Verses one through seven is one long sentence, and there's actually only one primary verb, and it is this one, made alive together with Christ. Made alive together with. And actually, it's a made-up word. The first time it's ever been found in the Greek language is right here. Greek predates this, written Greek, by hundreds and hundreds of years. This is the first in instance of this word because Paul is trying to come up with a terminology that fits what has happened in Christ. You can make something alive or bring something back to life, let's say a plant that's died, or maybe even occasionally a life that's dead, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not reviving. It's being made alive together with And the with is the key part that's part of this verb. It's with Christ. Why doesn't God just say, well, I make you alive? You were sinful, but I say you're good. It has to be with Christ. Because Jesus, 
carries our sin in his death on the cross. And this is saying the only way we can be made alive spiritually, morally, eternally is with Christ, with the one who took our sin, took our wrath to the cross, to the grave, rose again, and offers us life and forgiveness and salvation. The made alive together with tells us we need to do something with Christ, with Jesus. The gospel says this, either you are alive with him or you are dead and apart from him. With whom are you with? I might have messed that up. In a parallel set of sentences, we get back to what we started with, which is verses 8 and 9, but verse 8 tells us this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, we talk about it a lot here at CCV, grace is completely and totally undeserved and unearned. Grace, in a biblical sense, is actually very hard for us. Let me give us an example, okay, that maybe, especially teenagers, you could probably understand this one. Let's say you are a very smart kid, and you're incredibly hardworking. You do really well in school. In fact, you get straight A's, and your dream school is Princeton, because your mom went there, your grandfather went there, and you visited the campus. And though you've heard many bad things about New Jersey, it's like Eden in the middle of New Jersey. It's beautiful. It's a fantastic campus, and you know it. It's your dream. And you've worked from seventh grade honors math all the way through to ultimate levels of calculus and AP. Straight A's, and you get in. You get into Princeton. You earned it. And then a month or two later, that book comes out that lists all the kids in your class and what colleges they're going to, and you find out not only are you going to Princeton, but also, wait a minute, the other person going to Princeton is that pot-smoking party guy. You know the slacker guy? The one who's never taken any of your honors or AP classes? And from what you know, he gets Ds and Fs? He was expelled for six months, he's like 22, (laughs) and he's going to Princeton? It must be family legacy. Somebody must have donated something. It must be one of those ethnic things. How come he gets in? Why are you going to Princeton? I don't know. I just got a letter saying I was accepted. Pretty cool, huh? It's not cool. You earned it. You got there of your own hard work, your intelligence. He smoked pot, went to parties, and didn't even show up at class. Why is he going to Princeton? It's grace. It's grace. Don't worry, kids. I don't think that'll happen. And don't think that if you get D's, you're going to Princeton. We don't have it up on the screen, but in verse 5 it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not once we got out out of our trespasses and sins. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let me be clear about something, and we've talked about it here before. 
God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. It's not that you have to meet God halfway. Well, he died for your sins. You go and do good stuff so that God will let you in by Jesus. Nor is it karma. Any idea of karma inside of your head is sub or anti-Christian. Your good and bad are not going to outweigh each other. It is Christ or it is Christ. God does not help the good. God saves the dead. Either you are dead and you recognize it, and maybe you will finally open your eyes to see what he has done in Christ, or you will keep thinking you need to be better. But that's not what it says, is it? It goes on to say, the rest of verse 8 and into verse 9, this salvation, this grace salvation, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We think of boasting as somebody who's a braggart, right? But the way that the word is used here and the way it was used in first century circles, to boast was to put your confidence in something. So for a first century Jew, what you boasted in, what your confidence was in, somebody like Paul before he came to faith in Jesus, his confidence was in being ethnically Jewish, one of the chosen people. It was in being circumcised being able to have the physical marks of one of the chosen faithful. It was in having a temple where you worshiped, knowing God was present there for you and your people, and it was in following the law, obeying the law. You obeyed the law, you went to the temple, you were circumcised and you were ethnically Jewish. That was your confidence. If, even as Christians, our confidence is not in grace alone, through faith alone? Then, as 21st century Americans, our confidence will be merit-based because we are Americans and the things we do are earned and merit-based. And in many ways, they should be, right? Again, we've talked about it. The straight-A student should go to Princeton, not the straight-D student. The hard worker should get the job. The best athlete should start. Merit and earned is our culture, it's our economics, it's how we do most everything, but it's not the gospel. But it will be your fallback, your natural way of thinking, if you are not relying entirely on grace. And if you are not, your confidence will be in your religious and moral performance. Your confidence about your salvation your confidence before God, your confidence in life will be because of your church attendance or because you give money, you're generous, because for some of you, your theology is the right theology, you read the right theologians, your doctrine is right. It'll be because you have fervor and emotion and earnestness for God and you express it. Or it'll be because you're just a good person you don't break the law. You are a pretty moral person. Your confidence will be in something that has to do with your performance. But the result of that is that you will tend to be superior. Superior, for instance, to the unchurched or to non-spirit-filled Christians or to liberals 
or to Methodists or Donald Trump supporters, we'll find somebody, somebody that is less than us because we're keeping a certain code and they're not. We're performing intellectually, morally, and they're not. And we'll be insecure if we're not relying on grace. When we struggle with habitual sin, we will feel awful and destroyed. If you miss going to mass two weeks in a row, you'll be unable to show yourself for your family and friends. When you're just not feeling your emotional fervor for Christ like you did a year ago, you'll be unsure if you're still saved. When it's not grace, it becomes works. But the gospel is not about what you did, it's about what Christ did, and it is a gift. That's the other word that's used here, isn't it? It's a gift. Your salvation is a gift. Even faith, in some ways, is a gift. That word gift is actually the, um, it's, it's, a, it's a word for a sacrifice in the ancient world when you used to offer sacrifices or offerings to your gods. You would go to the temple and offer something, offer a sacrifice to appease or please the gods. But notice how reversed it is in the gospel. The gospel is not the offering we bring to God. It's the offering of himself that he gives to us. It's not go sacrifice something for the God. It's the God sacrifices himself for you in order to offer us as a gift salvation. Did you see the difference between religion and the gospel? Religion says you need to give something to God, offer something to God. The gospel says, I have offered my son for you. And this gift is received by faith, by both accepting that you're a dead sinner and by trusting in Jesus' death in your place. If you're here today as one of the nuns, unaffiliated, agnostic, or even atheist, what is it you're rejecting? What is it that you're not actually interested in? Are you not interested in rules and religion? Neither am I. Are you not interested in following a system? That's okay. Is it the gospel you're rejecting? Be aware, know what you're rejecting. And if you're a Christian, this is the gospel we claim we believe, but is it the gospel we live? Or do we live out of a religious mindset? In a religious mindset, we approach life, and we talked about this, as if I must perform and be good enough in order to deserve heaven, or if I perform and am good enough, I deserve a good life. The gospel says, I can't be good enough. And so I fall on God's grace. Christ's death, not my life, is the basis of my security and hope and salvation. Think about how this plays out, okay? Let's think about this in a couple of just examples to close us out. Why, why are we often or sometimes superior or disdainful of somebody else? 
And all of us have some element of this. I mentioned it earlier. If you're successful or talented, you got your life together, we tend to look down on those who aren't. All of us tend to do it with something. And it's usually whatever we value most and do well at. If you're the kind of person who's always on time, you disdain people who are always late. Financially frugal, disdain those who are in debt. If you are fit, you have a certain way of thinking, even if you don't say it, about those who are overweight. You get straight A's, how do you feel about slackers? For some reason, it's not enough just to bike to work. You have to actually look down on those who drive SUVs. You have to. We cannot simply be good at something or successful. We have to do it against others. Or rather, if we are doing it, success in anything, and we have a disdain for others, it's probably because we're thinking in religious terms. Why am I fit? Because I ate well and exercised. How come I'm successful? Because I worked hard and made the right choices. I earned it, I deserve it, and not them. But if we're saved by grace, if we really, really believe we're saved by grace and we live like it's all a gift from God, then what grounds do we have for superiority? Unless we're just paying lip service to grace and we're really finding our salvation in our career or our body or our grades. Let's think of another area. Why do some of us go around always hurt, feeling like life's unfair? Feel like you're not appreciated or recognized for what you do? You might not say it because it's, you know, people are going to think weird of you if you do, but inside you're thinking, do they even know how much I do for this business? Do they know how much time I've put into this PTA? Are they aware how much work I do around this house? Where's my praise, my recognition? Why am I not appreciated? You see life is constantly unfair. How come they're getting ahead and not me? Or you include them whenever you're doing something, but somehow they seem to do stuff and never remember to include you. Why are they cutting you out? You would never do that to them. But if we're saved by grace, then why are we so fragile? Why are we always trying to prove ourselves, get recognition, compare ourselves? The gospel tells us you did nothing, you deserve nothing, but God gives you everything. If we live by grace, we will live secure and be able to generously extend grace and even be happy when somebody else succeeds. Why? Another why. Why might we be unforgiving and even turn to bitterness? Sometimes it's bitterness built up through years. Years of an inconsiderate friend or a controlling spouse. Or you've been hurt deeply. And I don't want to diminish this, but if you've been betrayed, gossiped about, lied to, dealt with infidelity, how, how, how in the world could we possibly get to the forgiveness Jesus talks about? 
many of us are very good tally keepers. We're good at keeping a record of wrongs done against us. Corey Tenboom was a uh, woman who survived the Holocaust, a Christian woman, who then went around talking about forgiveness and God's grace. And she talked about a story, which I'm not going to get into, about how she had to offer forgiveness to one of the uh, guards at the camp that she had been and where her sister had died. But she goes on to tell this story about how about 10 or 15 years after the war, she was hurt deeply by some friends. Some letters they wrote, some things they said, and how they treated her hurt her deeply. And she just couldn't get it out of her head. She kept praying and praying and couldn't get it out of her head. And so finally, finally she confessed it both to a minister and then to them. And she said, okay, I have forgiven them. But some years after that, when she seemed to be reconciled to them, she had these people over to her house along with some others. And after they had left, this one friend of hers came up and said, Corey, I thought you had forgiven them. It doesn't seem like you have. It seems like you're holding on to something. She said she was talking. She, she, she said, well, but, you know, I, I have forgiven them, but, you know, what they did was wrong. Look, I have the letters to prove it. And she went over to her drawer and pulled out the letters they had written that were so offensive to her. He said, so you've forgiven them, but you're holding the record against them, aren't you? You need to drop both. She said it wasn't until she went and burned those letters, dropped the tally, that she could finally let go and forgive. What letters are we keeping against friends, spouse, employer? The other reason why we can't forgive is because ultimately one of the hardest things when we're hurt or offended is that we would say this back, I would never do that. And very often, the actual instance of us being hurt, may actually, that may actually be true. We see their sin against us as distinct from and worse than any of our sins. And on some levels, that may be interpersonally the case. But if the gospel is true and we're living by it, if we really believe all of us are dead, equally dead in our trespasses and sins, then their offenses and my offenses are both offenses. They're both reasons that we are sinful and dead. Both my enemy and I are dead sinners. Both of us live by nature apart from God. Both of us need grace. And it's only when I grasp the depth of God's forgiveness for me that I can possibly extend forgiveness. In verse 10, Paul gets to the concluding part of this sentence and he says, we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship created for, in Christ Jesus for good works. The New Living Translation gets it uh, spot on here when it says we are God's masterpieces. That word workmanship comes from an artisan who is making his finest craft. God doesn't say, what is your work that you offer me? He says, you are my masterpiece. And the life that we're called to live in the gospel is a recognition of who the master is 
and what kind of masterpiece he has made us to be. It's become what you already are. You are a masterpiece made to live in relation to the master and enjoy life, the life that is yours by grace as a gift. Question is, what do we do with that gift? Let's pray. God, our Father, it's hard for us to really admit the depth of our sin or to recognize the incomparable grace that you offer us overcoming our sin. It's hard for us to really accept that we are more sinful than we're willing to admit and more loved in Jesus Christ than we can dare to imagine. But give us the grace to imagine it and to live into it. In Jesus' name, amen. Savior has ransomed me.